Get ready for the Synthesizer Library podcast. Because, let's face it, synthesizers are just cool. All right, let's talk NAM. So I just got back from NAM, and in case you don't know, that is the National Association of Music Merchants. I believe that's what it's called. And it's a great big trade show where all the music manufacturers bring all their latest products and demo them for everybody. Um, and I've never been before. However, my day job involves a company that is has always gone, and I've been there a long time. So I've always been involved with the behind-the-scenes type of things for NAM. And this was my first experience. And I got to say, from what I've heard in the past, synthesizers are really hot right now. They were front and center on the trade show floor. You walk right in the front, and Dave Smith's booth is right there, right next to it is Moog, and then you go down a little bit further, and it's all these boutique synthesizer makers for Eurorack, and everybody was just right there front and center, and that was great to see for a guy like me who really loves synthesizers and always has. And the guitars and the drums and everything else was still there, and it was very loud, but they weren't front and center quite the way synthesizers were. And from what I understand, it hasn't always been that way. So it's good to see. If you are a boutique synthesizer maker, you tinker with electronics, and you're thinking of starting something, now would be the time. It's definitely the market is hot for that right now. At least that's how it appeared at NAMM. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. So I really, really liked the way the Moog 32 sounded. They had a great booth set up, and you had to sit on bean bags and try it out. They had various different stations, lots of them actually, and um, some of them had several other Eurorack things integrated. The one that I got to try was only just two, I think it was, of the thir- of the Mother 32s, and even just by itself, it just it sounded great. And just right next to that was the Dave Smith booth, and I got to meet Dave. He seems very nice. And I tried out the Prophet 6, which I hadn't been able to do yet, and the Prophet 12, and I did not get to get my hands on the the new OB6. It was actually being shown both in the Dave Smith booth and down the way a little bit in the Oberheim booth, which is kind of interesting. But the two profits that I tried out just sound glorious, and I'm really wanting one of those. I'm going to save up my pennies. I think I'm going to head down that road. And then over in the Eurorack world, uh, everybody was there that you would expect. Dopefer was there. Uh, Pittsburgh was there, all the little guys were there, and everything was just crazy, a lot of energy over there. All the different drum sounds that were coming out of the Euroracks were actually really great sounding. I got a great demo on the Pittsburgh Modular Lifeforms. It looks really great, and the price point is pretty close to the Moog, I believe, by itself. Yeah, it's it's tempting as well. If only I had unlimited funds, I think I'd buy one of all of them, or maybe probably two of all, you know, just in case. I think I could keep going talking about NAM for the whole podcast, but I do want to get to another topic. I thought I might mention first, over upstairs, actually, in the Roland booth, there I, I did get to try the, the new tiny Juno and Jupiter. They really, really sound huge and I don't really like the form factor. I thought the tiny sliders were a little bit hard to use. I think I could probably get used to it, but for portability, of course, it's it's awesome. And the Jupiter sounds great since 
a Jupiter 8 is really incredibly expensive these days. Getting your hands on one is probably pretty difficult, but I would jump on that Jupiter 8. In fact, of course, there's another thing I got to buy. It's just so many things to buy. Um, and then back downstairs on the main floor, Korg was there. And of course, the new mini log was really popular. There were a lot of people trying it out. It felt great. And I didn't get to spend a lot of time on it because there were a lot of people crowding around it and I didn't want to take too long. So I didn't get to dive into it very much, but there are a lot of reviews on it online. So check that out. And then over in Arturia, um, I actually had been kind of interested in their new controller. It is sort of like a small keyboard controller and a sequencer, like a step sequencer, and it's supposed to control um, control voltage things as well. But I got to say, the keyboard really, really was disappointing. It didn't feel great at all. However, their, their great big monster, uh, I can't remember, something brute, that one felt a lot better as far as how the keyboard felt, and it sounded huge and amazing. Of course, I didn't actually get to play that one. I was just watching over the shoulders as somebody else did. I'm sure there's something I'm forgetting that I wanted to talk about from Nam, but let's get into today's topic. I actually heard from a couple of you about the last podcast that we did about oscillator sync and and it actually turned out to be helpful. So I'm glad to hear about that. And on Twitter, Neil asked that I follow up with the ring mod episode. So that's what we're going to cover today. Ring modulation and amplitude modulation are sometimes used interchangeably. And although they shouldn't be, they are very, very similar. And there's only one difference between the two. And hopefully by the end of this podcast, you'll understand what the difference is and what they are. It's probably not too much of a sin to call one the other and so forth. They're close enough that I think that we can get by just understanding what they are. So until I get to the difference, I'll probably use those terms interchangeably, but I'm going to try to just use amplitude modulation while I'm explaining the first part. Um, So in amplitude modulation, there are certain requirements, just like we had with oscillator sync, where we had to have at least two oscillators and they had to be tuned separately from each other. In fact, the second one had to be tuned a little bit higher than the original in order for the oscillator sync to have any kind of audible effect. Okay, that was oscillator sync. For amplitude modulation, you also have to have two sounds or two two waveforms, um, usually from two separate oscillators in a synthesizer, and they have to be tuned differently from each other. Now, amplitude is how far the waveform varies from its center point and usually is perceived as volume. So if we were to modulate the amplitude of a waveform, what does that sound like? Well, at its most basic level, it's just a tremolo. It's just the the volume of the sound going up and down. So you hear the, the volume increasing and decreasing. And while this is true, usually when the one of the waveforms is a low frequency oscillator, that's not really what we're looking for with amplitude modulation. Usually when we talk about amplitude modulation or ring modulation, both waveforms are operating within the audible range, where an LFO is usually so low you can't hear it. You can hear its effect, but you don't hear the actual oscillator. So in amplitude modulation, both of those oscillators are running somewhere where we can actually hear it. And what happens when you take one oscillator and modify its amplitude with another oscillator, you get an effect where you get something called sidebands. And what that is, is the frequency of the first oscillator plus 
or minus the frequency of the second oscillator. Not plus or minus, plus and minus the frequency of the second oscillator. Okay, so we have to get into just a little bit of math here. It's not hard math, but hold on to your seats. So for an example, if the two waveforms that we're looking at, we're gonna consider them both to be sine waves just for right now. So the first sine wave is operating at, let's say, 150 hertz. And the second sine wave is operating at 100 hertz. So if you add those two together, 150 plus 100 is 250. So you're going to get a sideband at 250 hertz. And then you're going to get the difference between those as well. So 150 minus 100 is 50 hertz. So you'll get a sideband at 50 hertz. Now in practice, I don't imagine anyone getting out their calculator and figuring out exactly what the frequencies of the sidebands are. But it's just good to know what's happening when you hear it. Okay, those two frequencies, those two waveforms need to have names so we can talk about them. Uh, one of them is going to be called the carrier frequency, and one of them is going to be called the modulating frequency. So the modulating one is the one that is affecting the other one. The carrier frequency is the main frequency in our analysis here. So here's the big difference between amplitude modulation and ring modulation. In amplitude modulation, the original carrier frequency is still there, still present in the sound. In ring modulation, it isn't. It's removed or it's just excluded from the sound. So you get all the sidebands, but you don't have any of the original sound. So you end up with all this inharmonic content, which doesn't make a lot of sense on its own, but it's great for things like bells and metallic things that aren't supposed to exact, exactly sound like a pitched instrument. Whereas with amplitude modulation, that original carrier frequency still appears there and appears to be the pitch of the sound. All right, I think it's time for some examples. All right, here we have just a regular old sine wave at A440, just above middle C, all by itself. And I'm gonna add in a second sine wave that is tuned a half step above it, and it's gonna sound pretty awful. Almost like an old telephone. Okay, no amplitude modulation has been turned on yet. That's just the two waves together. All right, so now let's turn on amplitude modulation and hear the difference. So the pitch kind of still stays um, detectable at 440. Kind of still sounds like an A, but it sounds pretty strange. So when the two waveforms are pretty close together in pitch, then the sum and differences of those pitches are going to be pretty close together and you get kind of a crowded, unusual sound like that. Now have a listen to this. So I've tuned the modulation wave down three octaves and you can hear almost the tremolo effect of that really low waveform causing the volume or the amplitude of the mod of the carrier frequency to rise and fall in volume so that's kind of zooming in real close to the waveform and seeing what's actually going on and once we bring that uh, modulation frequency up into the audible range then we start to get something more strange sounding so here it is two octaves above and sounds pretty tame 
But if we get it to its so that they're in harmonic intervals from each other, that's when we start to get the weird kind of metallic-y sound. next thing we need to consider is using something besides sine waves, something that actually has some harmonics, some upper harmonics, and what happens to those when we combine them using amplitude modulation. So what we have here is a saw wave, which is being amplitude modulated by a square wave, and the square wave is tuned um, six steps above the saw wave. And believe it or not, uh, I have the filter so that it is fairly closed and the cutoff frequency is kind of low to kind of remove a lot of the excess harmonics. And I'm going to bring the volume down a little bit so that I can open up that filter. And you can hear just how much harmonic content there is now. It's just a very rich sound full of all sorts of frequencies. Um, and they almost reach the point of being noise because they're, they may appear to be so very random. Um, but what's happening here is just like in the plain sine wave uh, demonstration, the sum and differences of those two waveforms are added to the original sound. Now, now that we have a square wave and a saw wave, each of which have their own set of harmonics, every one of those harmonics is added and subtracted to every one of the other harmonics in the sound. So you end up with a great huge wash full of frequencies in the harmonic area. So this is great for giving you something to work for, work from, but you probably will want to filter out quite a bit of it to get a sound that you want, and then probably use some envelope on the filter to open and shut that filter to kind of create and carve out a sound that you're looking for. So now that we know what amplitude modulation and ring modulation are, let's talk about what you can actually do with them in practice. First of all, what you're not going to do with them is you're not going to create some lovely harmonic string sounds and warm, comfortable pads and ambient type things like that. As you can hear from the examples we've played so far, it's kind of a startling, raw-sounding, angry effect almost. So it's good for things like special effects where you need robotic-type sounds. In fact, some of the earlier, very famous uses of a ring modulation is combining a voice with a sine wave and creating sort of a robotic sound and that was used in Doctor Who and it's kind of similar to a vocoder effect has the same kind of sound to it but it's really uh, a completely different approach to getting that sound. We also mentioned using them for things like bells where when you 
hit a bell with a hammer, not every single sound that it makes is going to be related to the original um, tone of that bell. You get a whole bunch of these strange overtones. And in fact, you get undertones as well. And that's what we haven't really defined, though, is when you add and subtract the harmonics together, you end up with these tones below the original sound. Or usually we're th used to thinking about harmonics as, as tones that are above the fundamental frequency. Well, the subtractive side of the equation gives us a whole bunch of these undertones that are below the fundamental frequency, and they don't exactly take over the what the perceived pitch of the of the sound but they are there beneath the fundamental pitch and this might be something where if you don't want those in the end result you might use a high pass filter to filter out those lower sounds then again too much filtering high pass or low pass you're going to end up stripping out all of the additional harmonics that you just created with the ring modulation so you got to be careful don't strip out everything you just added so another case where you might use ring modulation or amplitude modulation is in creating percussive type sounds that need a little bit of an extra metallic clang to them not just great big bells like we mentioned but more of sort of the 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 high and bright sound that you get from uh, percussion that isn't exactly harmonic and in this case i would recommend using amplitude modulation instead of just ring modulation so you keep that original fundamental in the sound. One thing we haven't mentioned yet is why it is called ring modulation. Obviously amplitude modulation is fairly self-explanatory. The amplitude is being modulated. But in ring modulation there's nothing, there's not a ring that's being modulated. So where does it get its name? Well it has to do with the original circuits that were developed to accomplish this type of modulation consisted of diodes that were arranged in the shape of a ring. So the, uh, sort of a circular, or not necessarily circular, but a pattern where they fed into each other in a loop. And so that became known as ring modulation because of how the circuit actually functioned. And if you are interested in building your own ring modulator, um, I poked around a little bit and to see if I could find one, and the best thing that I found was on the Delptronic site for the Eurorack format. Um, there is a ring modulator, but it actually looks like it's been discontinued. But the schematics and build instructions and everything for the circuit are there on the site. So check out Delptronics. I'll link to it in the show notes. And I actually got to meet Mickey Delp at the NAM show. And he seems like a bright guy and really friendly, actually very friendly. And he loved showing off his cowbell. That was actually a circuit that was built into an actual cowbell, which was kind of funny. Um, but that's a little bit of a side note. But that reminds me that I wanted to mention that um, so far we've been talking about amplitude modulation and ring modulation as sort of built-in functions in certain synthesizers. And not all of them have it. Uh, many of them don't, in fact. But you can buy external ring modulation effects units. Um, guitar players, of course, rely completely on all their effects to be outside of the guitar. And companies like DoD has the Gonculator, which is a ring modulator pedal. And you can run your synthesizer through that. And the Delptronics example, um, you, could, you could run two separate waveforms into it. It has inputs for the two different 
waves, one being the modulator, one being the carrier, or it actually has its own built-in carrier signal that you can use to as the modulation source. And that's about going to do it for our discussion of ring modulation. I'm going to try to focus a little bit more on it this month as I create more patches for the synthlib.com website. And if you haven't yet, of course, go and check out the patches we have there. I'm starting to add more instruments. Um, in fact, I'm adding instruments that I don't even own. So it's going to be up to you guys, the community, to build the patch library. And I look forward to seeing what everybody has to contribute. So thanks for listening. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and all those other places. Um, and tell everybody you know who's into the synthesizers to get busy and let's build this synthesizer patch library. I'll see you next time. Bye.